Welcome to Grand Central Radio, the grandparents' community platform. I'm your host, Jerry Cole. This is a talk, listen, and act show for all grandparents and future grandparents everywhere. My grandparents uh, were also great-grandparents, my adult child, that child's spouse and in-laws, and my two young grandchildren give me lots of questions and concerns. Like you, I want to be as effective and helpful for my grandkids and their parents as possible. To achieve these goals, I also want to stay physically and mentally fit and have fun. We can help each other by sharing our challenges, solutions, and ideas about grandparenting and our lives as grandparents. You can replay our shows, learn about topics we plan for future Grand Central Radio, find lists, forms, and other fun and useful materials curated especially for grandparents, and contact me, Jerry Cole, on our secure website, Grand Central Radio. Now, grandparents, as we've said, come from many, many different regions and backgrounds, and they're curious about our discussion topic today, talking about heritage and ancestry with grandchildren. To help us explore that topic, we're fortunate to have with us today a grandparent experienced in and passionate about genealogy. Webster's Dictionary defines genealogy as an account of the descent of a person, family, or group from an ancestor, but as our special guest will show us, There's a lot more to genealogy than that. Sheila Wexler, our special guest, has been president of a large, specialized genealogy society in the greater Washington, D.C. area for almost four years. She began researching the family histories of herself and her husband in 1978, including the Eastern European ancestry of her own family and up to nine generations of her husband's family in the United States. And she enjoys engaging children and young people in learning about their heritage through creative and interactive play. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us on Grand Central Radio. It is my pleasure to be here, Jerry. Thank you. And I hope what we talk about today gets everybody excited. Okay, well, I have a good intention to do that, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, I just have a few questions for you. What is genealogy and why is it important to grandparents and their grandchildren? We look at genealogy and we sometimes call it family history, which is a little more welcoming, not to children, but also to adults to hear it called that genealogy, such a a strange word for young people or even for adults who have no idea what it's about. I had somebody contact me and think we were uh, uh, geologists and wanted to know if we can present something. And I said, do you mean genealogy or geology? And he'd gotten the words confused. So we look at it as family history. It is important because we like to know what our backgrounds are. We're all curious about who our parents were, who their parents were, where people came from, why we do what we do. And we want to pass that along to children who are naturally curious. My own grandchildren and one of them uh, lived with me for a year with her parents while they were getting a, a new business started, would walk around the house and pick up things and say, what is this? Who is that? And we found ourselves, and she was only like three years old, talking about where she came from, who these people were. We didn't get into a family tree. She was only three. But as time went on and she had a brother added to the family, um, we started pulling out family pictures and looking at them. and And the idea of I've got, there were people before me and they're going to be people after me. So family history is not just the past. It's also the future. When and why, Sheila, did you become so interested in genealogy? 
Oh, it was 1978, and it was the TV series Fruits. And we watched the whole series, and we were so excited. And I live in the Washington, D.C. area, so at that time, you could just drive down to the archives, park in their underground parking, walk in and show nothing but your driver's license, and go upstairs and sit in front of the microfilm. And and we would sit there for hours and hours and hours on Saturdays looking for things. We would then go over to the Library of Congress and look at the city directories and go over to the Madison building that was part of the Library of Congress and look at maps. And we were having a terrific time. Early on, I found that my family history was a lot harder to trace than my husband's. Uh, I go one generation and now I'm talking about different languages. Uh, the other side of the pond, as we uh, call the uh, the Atlantic, and it became difficult. So I interviewed my mother, who was helpful, and my father sat there at the table and made fun of her, making you know, telling me these things. And I remember thinking, Daddy, next time I'm in Florida, I'm going to talk to you. And he died before I could come back down there. So I had to use what my mother remembered, and she had an incredible memory. And use that to try to start. And we were working not with computers. Everything was on paper and hand-drawn family trees. They didn't even issue forms yet, printed forms. You had to make up your own. And that was a big business to do that. Um, And our own son, who's now 52, had no interest in that. And so we did it alone. And I found myself going over to my husband's side because it was a lot easier to do. And not only was it low-hanging fruit, it was fruit laying all over the ground. All you had to do was go pick it it up. And we would travel to New England and walk through the cemeteries there and go to places that had his family name on them. And I thought, this is great. I got to get back to my own. And by the time I did, uh, a genealogy society focusing on my specialized interests had started 40 years ago, 41 years ago now. And I was able to get into that organization. And that's the one I'm now president of. You know, in those interim years, I did some work on and off. And, you know, everybody knows how it is. You are working a paying job and that overcomes life. And I put everything aside and came back and discovered there are computers. There's online. This is great. So that's that's where I got back into it again. And it's more than just dates and places. I I started off asking my aunts, where was he born? When was he born? When did that happen? And they were like, I don't know. Then I found in the interviewing techniques I learned was about using stories. And I had an aunt refer to my father who was long gone at that point and say, oh, how he loved that dog. But I said, what dog? And that she could talk about. She couldn't tell me the dates. But she could tell me all about the dog and what my father did and his his interests. And that's that's what it took to really flesh out the stories. So it sounds to me, if correct me if I'm mishearing you, but it sounds as though you actually learned uh, the tools and skills to explore your husband's family history and your family history really by doing. You followed your instincts. You went to the, at the time you started this, before computers, you went to the uh, museums and the record-keeping facilities that existed in the Washington, D.C. area, 
uh, to do your research really manually, and then of course going to cemeteries and so forth. But you followed what your common sense told you was the way to proceed. You didn't have a rule book to go by. Is that right? That's true. As that we started getting speakers at genealogical meetings, uh, the National Genealogy Society would have meetings. We'd go to that, and I started picking up things. It was also helpful for me because my background is marketing research. And one of the things I do is interviewing. And I found out this was very much like interviewing people on, let's say, the brands that they use. Uh, why do they use them? I didn't say, when did you purchase that? I was, I was doing things like saying, um, what brands do you use? Why do you prefer brand A over brand B? What does your family think of that? And it was asking the questions and being prepared to go whichever direction that question took me. So it was a kind of a natural fit for me. And uh, but I did learn the uh, the family history style, which is a little more uh, gentle and engaging, especially it depends upon the people. You know, younger people, kids uh, will drag you all over the place with lots of questions. But yes, but what, who, when, where, you know, and things I couldn't even answer for them. On the other hand, when I sat down with my eldest aunt, who was the last one left in the family in her 80s, everyone said to me, she won't talk to you. She won't tell you anything. After spending three days with her in Pennsylvania, I walked away not just with a bunch of audio cassette tapes that I'd made, which at first scared her to death that I was recording things, but I walked away with those, but I also walked away with a box full of photos and her close relatives like her children or whatever who were there during this said what asked her why did you give all these to her why didn't you give them to us and my aunt answered because she was interested and she asked about it you didn't so there was something to be said about that so the bottom line is you ask a lot of questions and you are receptive to other people that ask a lot of questions as well and just react to those uh, by following the instinct to get to the answers to those questions and keep people involved by doing that. So I'm going to ask you another question. What do you suggest then are the best ways for grandparents to excite their grandchildren about exploring their heritage and ancestry and uh, sustaining their passion for them? One of the things I found because children are, are visual before they can read or they don't comprehend what they're reading and it's a, you know, it can be a burden, was to use things they can see. I sometimes call it object genealogy. So when my three-year-old granddaughter, who's now 23, um, walked in the house and was looking at stuff, she, she looked into the, the china cabinet, into the hutch and said, what is that? And I pulled the dish out. She happened to pick the one thing I would have shown her because it was so interesting. It was a wedding gift to my grandmother in 1905. And it was a beautiful dish with, a, they call it a maple sugar dish. And I pulled it out and I let her hold it. You know, we sat down on the rug and I let her hold it and turn it over and look at it. And I said, do you have any idea how old that is? And one of the things I would sometimes do with the kids is say, what do you think is the oldest thing in the house that is besides me? And they'd get a laugh out of that. And then they'd run around the house and look to see what they could find, what they thought was the oldest thing in the house. So it was engaging them on their terms in a game in some way. Find the oldest thing you think in this is in this house, and I'll tell you about it. And the plate was just something that got us going. Then she said, well, tell me about, you know, that was your grandmother. What is your grandmother to me? And I sat there and did the great, great, you know, thing. And then took a piece of paper and put me on it 
put my granddaughter on it and put my grandmother on it. And I said, you know, there were generations in between and I filled in the generations. She could visualize that. That made sense. She was upstairs in my home office here another day. And, you know, and the other thing is you have to know how far you can push them before they, they get bored and want to know what's for lunch. Um, she was in my office one day and she picked up a photo and said, oh, that's so pretty. Who is she? You know, and I said, that's, that's Grandma Esther. Remember I showed you the plate? She said, yeah. I said, this is, was her wedding gift. And so now we now had a connection with the picture. The irony of it is I had that picture when I was in college and the man who is now my husband was then my college boyfriend. He looked at it one day, he said, oh, you went to one of those places where they dress you up in the old clothes and take your picture. And I looked at it and I said, no, that's my grandmother. He said, no, that's you. I said, no, that's my grandmother. So that's how much we looked alike at that age. I was 18 or 19. My grandmother was probably about 18 there when she got married or 17. And I got my granddaughter engaged that way. And with my grandson, boys are a little harder. They uh, don't go to like something was a wedding gift or the photos. They want to see other things. They want to hear the stories. So I engaged my grandson by talking about my father's dog, which now I knew about, which I'd never known because he liked dogs. And his, his father, my son, likes dogs. So we found that's the first thing is to find something in common that you can talk about. If you start talking about somebody who made um, tires for automobiles in a factory, you're going to lose them in a minute. But if you have, if they have an interest in cars, that's different. Think what they have an interest in. Think what's in your family that could interest them. The other thing has to do with their age. And, and it's a lot different to engage a four-year-old than it is to engage a 14-year-old or even a 24-year-old. Uh, different, different attention spans, uh, different types of interests and different ways. You know, it helps that I had, I had been a substitute teacher in, in a elementary and high school for a while, but I also taught at a university. And so I learned, I learned engagement techniques. It also depends now on where your, your, I call them G kids for grandchildren, where your G kids are located. Are they nearby where you see them? Even during a pandemic, people were visiting or are they far away? And if they're far away, you've got to figure out how you're going to do this with Zoom. Um, that really, really helps. I had 36 rolls of 16 millimeter film that was digitized. First, it had to be restored because it was in really bad shape. And it goes back to the early 40s. And I had it digitized. And in that film, was my son, who is now, like I said, 52. And I did set up a Zoom and I played a segment of it, just a snippet. So they could see, the, uh, the grandchildren uh, could see what their father looked like as a baby. They were astonished. My son was embarrassed, uh, but they were astonished. And that got us going. And I played a number of films for them over Zoom. They're short, had their attention span, they loved, they've always loved hearing stories about their own father. Tell us what he did. I bet he was a good kid. I bet he was a bad kid. What did he eat? And we got into that way. And by the way, food, boy or girl, is a terrific way to make links. Tell me a little bit about food. How do you use food to engage the children? Well, one of the ways we use food is recipes. My grandmother had a couple of recipes, as did my aunts, and my mother 
had gathered those and put them together in a recipe book, which she gave me. It must have been 40 years ago. And occasionally I would pull that out and make something. And then I'd say to one of the grandchildren, do you know where that came from? You know, whose recipe that is? And my son, who loves to cook, he's, a, he's closer to a chef than a cook. Um, I gave him a copy of that book. He found things in there that he likes. Uh, I also included recipes from my husband's mother, uh, who is a Southerner. And so he he's making some of the, the highly sugarized things that she would make. And so we were able to have a family cookbook and add things to it as we're going along. And kids like to help. And you get the kid in the kitchen with you. And while you're cooking, great-grandmother's recipe for something, you can tell them about great-grandmother. Helpful if you have a picture. Helpful if um, you could explain why she made it that way. You know, I had a recipe for my grandmother that involved searing the, the eggplant over a flame. And I used to think, why was she doing that? Why did she just put it on the electric stove and cook it or in the oven? And then I found out they didn't have those. She was, you know, it, it grew up in a situation where you had were cooking over types of open flames, whether it was gas or propane, or coal or, or wood or whatever. You didn't turn on an electric stove or oven. Uh, that came much later. So that's why that recipe is that way. And then we talk about how would we change it? What do we know now that we would change it? What would you do in the future? And one of the kids said, I'd put it in the microwave. Fine, find a way it works in the microwave. That carries it forward. You don't have to be starting an open flame to cook this. So that's how we engage them. And kids love to eat. So, hey, why not? <laughs> Especially if they make it themselves and they know it's going to be good, right? That's it. Right. Now, what free or inexpensive resources do you think our grandparents can use to help their grandchildren at all ages? I research and uh, actually give them opportunities to even find other resources to research their ancestries, whether it's in print or online, you know, if they have limited resources for online, how can they do it in print and where would they go to for online resources? So see what you have at home. Start with the photo album, you know, to put kid, give kids something to do, organize the photo album, go through the boxes uh, of old things, have letters. What can, what, you know, who is that person who wrote that letter? Help us get organized Again, that's getting them involved. Once you've done that, one of the things I did with a sixth grade class recently was their teacher had them interview somebody in the family, the oldest person they thought was in their family. And we discussed what they learned in the interview. So that's an assignment to give your grandchildren to do. Go interview somebody, talk to them. What kinds of questions would you ask? Kids won't ask the where and when. They're not programmed that way. Encourage them to ask things like, what were your favorite games? Did you have a pet? I learned from my mother when I asked her what she liked to do. She said um, her older brother and herself, and there were five other siblings after them, um, her older brother and herself shared a pair of roller skates with each of them getting one skate because they couldn't afford a pair for each of them. So if you ask about what kinds of hobbies did you have? What kinds of toys did you have? Did you have a pet? Who was your best friend? Where did you meet him or her? That is the type of interviewing you can do with an older person who, as I found out with my aunt Ida, she can talk for hours about those things because she remembered them. And I, as she told her, her family locally, I was interested, they weren't. So a child that will sit by a, an older person's side or on a Zoom and ask those questions is going to learn a lot. 
Now, how do you start doing this? How do, yeah, I could easily tell you, go sign up for Ancestry.com or one of the other many specialized groups that are around, Genie and all these others. But, you know, go take a DNA test. That's, that's, I'm not going to call that the easy way out. That's, those are tools. Those are excellent tools. But there are free forms that are available. Put together a family tree. Go to the U.S. Archives. It's uh, usarchives.gov slash genealogy. I believe that's the right one. And see what they have. They have tree forms in various types. They have some that are really cute that you can download and print in color that will get engaged children. Um, you can, and if they're good enough to be online, you know, if they're old enough to be online by themselves, give them, give them the, the URL and tell them to go find the ones that they want. That's, again, that's engaging them, letting them pick out the forms that they want instead of you sending it to them. Once they have the form, you can, you know, and make sure you get the same form, you can walk them through it. What goes here? Where do you put your head? Where do you put your, you know, can I put photos in here? When I started, again, with my grandchildren, it was before all of this was online. We sat at the dining room table. I had a big roll of paper. We put names on on the pieces of paper and cut them out. And I let the kids paste them down on the tree. And they did this. You know, I was running a little summer camp for a week where they stayed at my house and we did things. Um, We did this every day for a week. We would take a little bit of time and go through the tree. So the tree was done at the very end. And uh, I did this again when my granddaughter graduated from college two years ago down in the University of South Carolina. We sat in a restaurant a seafood restaurant that had the paper on the table. There were like 20 of us there. And I started drawing the tree on the table when, and it wasn't the adults, it was the children said, who's, how is he related to me pointing to each other? And I drew the tree. By the time I'd finished, I had put all 20 something people on that tree, on the tablecloth, on that paper tablecloth. Let me say it was paper. And at that point, all the kids gathered around to try to figure out how they were related. And then we talked about who's a first cousin, who's a second cousin, the generations. And I showed them the way the families stack. I got to tell you, these kids who are like between eight and 13 years old caught on faster than the adults did about generations. And who's a first cousin, who's a first cousin once removed, who's second cousin's they caught on in a minute when I when I demonstrated, when I drew it. When you talk, people don't understand. But when I drew the tree out for them and let me tell them where, you know, let them tell me where they should be on that tree, they figured it out in a minute. Well, Sheila, now you're saying the forms that you're referring to from the archives, U.S. archives, are these are forms of trees or the forms that you can fill in yourself? Or are these forms that you, they, that you can use, that grandparents can use and children can use to request information about their ancestry that at least among U.S. citizens or residents that would be in the U.S. archives? I have to, I have to be careful what I say because there were things we could do a year ago we can't do anymore. Uh, these are forms uh, that uh, various forms that you use yourself, they're aids, they're tools that you use. If you want to make a request from the archives, it's a, it's, a, it's a process that you have to go through. You have to pay for them to do that. That's why I'm not suggesting that. Um, they will not do your research for you. You have to tell them what you want and tell them where they're gonna find it. Like I am looking for the 1930 census for Boston, Massachusetts. Here's the address. I know what census tract it's in. And the person's name was 
was Arnold Smith II. You know, with that, they'll look for it and probably $25 or whatever. So that's that's not the way to do, do genealogy unless you are absolutely, totally stumped or can't get, you know, online to do something. Okay. So in other words, you could start, a grandparent could start, for example, with a one of the online services, low-cost paid services, to get some basic information about some names and dates and countries of origins, let's say, uh, if they had no information about their parents or grandparents, if say they were not accessible or they weren't able to speak with them. And then they, you could embellish that information, fill it in, if you will, with color by the interviews and objects that you've inherited and so forth. Always start at the present. People like to make a jump back. They want to find out that they were um, off the Mayflower or they were related to uh, some famous movie star or that uh, they were uh, part of a dynasty, whether it was a monarchy in England or a Polish uh, rabbinical line. Everybody wants to jump back and start doing that. My, My comment on that is don't do it. Start with yourself. I will bet you may even have trouble finding your own marriage certificate and your own birth certificate. So start with that and record that. It is very interesting what is on some things. Uh, Death certificates in some states require that that the maiden name of the person who died's mother be on the death certificate. And I have picked up names that I would not have found otherwise that way. Not every state is, is it does this. So it's a it's a, a laborious process. There are books out there that can guide you about getting started, the steps to take. But what we always say is start with yourself, then start going backwards. What do you have for your parents? Do you have their marriage certificates? Do you, you know, this will give you the who and when. And the other thing, and this is more sophisticated, this isn't really with the children, unless the children are high school age or older, is the techniques of research. We, I like to use, and I've been disputed on this by some people, but this is a, a research standard that I've used professionally as well as in genealogy, is three points of proof. I try to find three things that have the same answer. So if I say, where were my parents married? My mother gave me one date. I'm doing the research and I find out there's another date. So she was still alive then. I asked her about that. She said, oh, well, we got married first in Connecticut. And then within a year, we got married in New York. So I now have two dates for their marriage. And I have the oral personal um, uh, connection that says this is where it came from. On the other hand, my mother swore her birth date was a certain year. I even had it put on her gravestone. You know what happened? I got the records and that wasn't the right birth date. And I looked in a couple of places and now I'm confronted with, you know, we believe, oh, it's, it's engraved in stone. Remember that phrase, it's engraved in stone, must be right. Um, it depended upon who the informant was at that time. I'd like to invite the other grandparents on this uh, call to jump in now and ask you some their own questions and raise their own concerns and offer their own suggestions about how they talk about heritage and ancestry with their grandchildren. So first, we're going to take a call from Amy and Hawthorne. Amy, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that this is so amazing. And thank you for, you know, having this uh, podcast. It's so interesting. I have been trying to find... Um, you know, my ancestry, uh, 
uh, I'm a first generation. So when my father was alive, he, he passed away in 1984. I, uh, before he got sick, I started asking him all these questions and I got, uh, and my mother also, uh, she's, she passed away in 92, but I asked them like about their parents, you know, what are their names? What did they do? And, uh, you know, they, they told me, you know, some stories and, and some of uh, what they remembered. And um, it's very uh, interesting. I, I do uh, belong to Ancestry.com. I find that um, a lot of what I need, I go on to look at the um, uh, the census info because they're from uh, my father and his entire family was from Europe. And my mother was born in you know the states but her parents and everyone else born in Europe as well and so i um don't have records that uh i could say you know i have a copy of this or that from uh it was italy so they the records were destroyed not only uh, in the war but in uh volcanic eruptions and cuz i did try to get some of those records and uh the they were gone. And so I also am so uh, thankful to know about, you know, these other um, uh, resources. Uh, my grandchildren, Bryce is eight and Emma is seven. And uh, we do show them pictures of my daughter when she was little, a baby, or I'll, I'll show them a picture of my three children when they were little, who's this, who's this? And, you know, they usually pick out their mother. And so it's, it's really cute, <laughs> but there is so much to this. Uh, as Sheila was saying that it, it's, it's just unbelievable how much info is out there. And, um, I, I do engage with the children with uh, food and baking because we're big into that. So, uh, you know, we, we make uh, certain things, traditional foods for, you know, different holidays. And uh, I tell them, you know, uh, my mother made this and her mother gave her this recipe. And uh, or with my husband, his father, um, you know, uh, gave us this recipe and this food that we eat on this holiday. And um, they are receptive to it, which I'm very happy about because I don't know if I would have been receptive to it when I was their age. I was worried about, not worried, but I wanted to go play. I didn't want to hear, you know, stories about the old country. So, <laughs> so it's really, it's very, very interesting, but I do love the suggestion uh, about uh, the handmade family tree that it would be such an amazing project to do with them, you know, to cut out the names and paste them. I, I do have a lot of information and I did have a cousin, she's passed away now, but she was so into this as well. And to share names and, and dates and, you know, who, was married to whom and the children. And uh, I have so many first, second, third, and fourth cousins um, that I, it's, I feel very blessed, but 
It's just amazing, amazing. And the children now, these kids have something that, you know, I or we didn't have, like our ancestors didn't have this in writing. Um, and so it was done by word of mouth, uh, or at least in my family. And so now they can have all of this info in, uh, in a report, on paper, on the computer, on the cloud, wherever. And it's something to me is so important to share this and pass it along to the, you know, next generations. It's, to me, it's a gift that we could give to them that this is where we came from. Amy, I, I think you are doing a fantastic job for yourself and for your family and for your grandchildren. Let me uh, make a couple of suggestions for you. One of the myths that we we uh, dispute in workshops and the courses and classes we teach is don't buy into the everything was destroyed because of the war. Um, a lot of times there were duplicate records, believe it or not, that were made. They were handwritten, but they were duplicate records and they were stored in various places. So my joke about Europe is uh, border de jour. You know, where are we living here? You know, the joke is everybody would wake up in the morning and say, oh, what country are we in? Who took it over during the night? What, you know, what language do we need to speak today? Is it Romanian? Is it Polish? Is it German? And that was the joke about border de jour. Uh, that the map fluctuated. So what happened was a lot of these countries, the records were kept in multiple places. They duplicated them. There was some scribe sitting somewhere in a city hall that would that would recopy everything. And in some cases, they were put in churches. And in other cases, they were sent to the capital. Well, you can imagine when your town is no longer in the country you were in, you and then it was bombed, you fear all the records are gone. Not so. They moved elsewhere. So one of the suggestions I was going to have for you is I, I don't know where Hawthorne is. What big city are you near? Uh, Ridgewood, New Jersey, uh, Newark, New Jersey. I will bet anything that Newark um, has a genie, an Italian genealogy society. I recommend to people they join a, a special, that's what I'm calling is a specialty society. Join a specialty genealogy society. There's a lot of good reasons for it. One is they know resources you had no idea to look for. Um, there are always people in there who can read uh, the language. They can also help read old handwriting sometimes. I find this with the Germans. Um, they're writing in the old script. And even though I learned it in college, I had a teacher who was really, really thought we all learned how to read the old German script. Um, most people can't, who even speak and write German can't read it anymore. And I can make out some of the letters. I know an S set when I see it. Um, and other people, I have no idea what that character is. I know what it is. Uh, so, you know, you, you'll do that. So look for an Italian genealogy society in your area. And frankly, during the pandemic, when everything's on Zoom, you can join one anywhere. We have people joining our group from, I have got members who are in Canada and Japan and Colorado, I had just saw somebody from Texas join. And I thought, why? And then I thought, why not? You know, everything we're doing is on Zoom at this point. The other thing is um, you might want to get a map of Italy and help your grandkids locate the ancestral towns that you know. 
there's something about maps that are also a very visual tool. And uh, that's that's one of the things that would be good. So, so try that out. I'm glad you're a member of Ancestry.com. Be careful about the hints. I've had hints thrown at me that just were totally, totally wrong. And I know it because I know the family. On the other hand, my cousin's wife decided she was going to help him with the genealogy. And she picked up a whole line of people who were totally wrong. She filled out the tree with that line, even after I contacted her and said, no, you don't have the paperwork. This doesn't work. She continues to do it and she made it public. And you know what happened. It, as they say, went viral. Other people are picking up her mistakes. So the last, absolute last thing I ever look at in the hints is the hints from other people. I I don't bother with the hints. If I see something, uh, somebody has asked me a question, uh, you know, is your mother or father this or that, or, you know, and then I might respond to them. And uh, about, you know, a few people have asked me and, uh, you know, I respond to them that this is not familiar to me. So no. Uh, Yeah, I'm very careful with that. I, I can't you know, have something uh, on my tree that's incorrect. As far as the map, I've showed uh, the children, uh, we, we have a globe and I show them, you know, this is where my parents and grandparents came from. And this is where daddy's, I mean, um, grandpa's mother came from, grandpa's father came from. So, but I like the idea of getting into the city as opposed to just the country. Yes, that's that's an important engagement. And you could also, what I found was just fun, even just for me, is to take that town and, and put it into Google and up come scenes of that city the way it is now. And I also can put it in with a date and go back to the early 1900s and see what the pictures looked like back then. That's pretty engaging for just you as an adult doing your genealogy to see and imagining, you know, sitting there with a child saying, okay, here's what, here's what Milano looks like now. Let's see what Milano looked like 1900, hundred years ago, 1920 even. And, and you look and then say, imagine what do you suppose my grandmother or my mother would do then? Did she go shopping every day? That's part of learning about life. Yes, they shopped every day at the market for, for fresh vegetables and things. And it's 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 really hard to do family history and not get into other things in history. Um, that's part of the uh, migration patterns from New England is a is you can trace families going across New England to upstate New York, down along the, the uh, Lake Erie, around through Pennsylvania, onto Ohio, and you can just follow those migration patterns and you learn about the history that way of this country. You can learn about what's going on in Milan by doing the same thing. Um, Sheila, could I ask a question? Yes. Sheila, what is the most interesting thing that you found since you are doing this genealogy for your family? Well... On my side, I think the most interesting thing is two generations ago, they arrived with like a quarter in their pocket. They came with nothing. My grandmother, supposedly, according to my mother, came by herself at age 14 with a neighbor. And and I figured that the ship's records would never show her because she traveled under somebody else's name. And I had searched 40 years and I finally found her in the Antwerp police records. And the reason was that they kept track of everybody coming through their city. 
getting on the ships. That was what they did in Belgium back then. And then there were some stories about that. So I thought, wow, is that interesting? And they all came with next to nothing. And by the time I'm at the second, the next generation in the tree, and I'm reading the things that are popping up on an ancestry and things that other people are telling me, I found out we had this incredible number of doctors and dentists and, and accountants, CPAs and attorneys in one generation. That was, I, how did this happen? To me, that was amazing. Then when I looked at my husband's background, which is, like I said, goes back nine generations or so here in the U.S., we found, this was early on, 40 years ago, we found his great-great-grandfather shot and killed a deputy sheriff in Florida, like at the, uh, around 1890-something. And he just, you know, he came to town with his wagon and got into a dispute with the deputy sheriff and shot him and killed him. And for two years afterwards, he was acquitted for a whole variety of reasons, uh, he wound up being shot and killed as he was standing behind his mule, pushing the plow through the field in Florida. So, so we go from one extreme to the other here. And it's funny because that's the type of story my son wanted to hear about. Well, Amy, th these were fabulous questions. I love that conversation that you had with Sheila. And we learned a lot from both of your backgrounds. Connie and Ralph, I'd love to hear your questions and your comments and concerns and ideas about heritage and ancestry talks with your grandkids. Well, thank you, Jerry. Uh, my background very much uh, like uh, Sheila's Eastern European, and I was very fortunate that my father lived to 98, and I'm a very curious person and ask a lot of questions. So over the years, I listened carefully, I asked a lot of questions, and he was a good raconteur. So, but at 95, I decided I should get him as an oral history, you know, had my little, my little recorder and his 95th birthday. And I, I prepared my interview questions carefully. And it was remarkably revealing because it came to a certain point. My father was a very stoic man, Eastern Europe. I'm first generation. And I was very fortunate that he lived to 98 and was healthy. I asked questions that um, all about, you know, coming over. He remembered that he was six years old when he came to Ellis Island. And I had done some research. I, I knew the ship and, and all of those. Um, through the ship's manifest. And uh, as you said, his came over with his mother, his father had pre-come pre two years before, etc. But some of the questions brought him to tears because he was so afraid he was going to be sent back at Ellis Island because he said, I was a skinny runt of a kid. And um, the way they tested you in your eyes, looking at how healthy you were. And he felt his mother was going to be able to stay because she was strong and, uh, you know, a, a uh, strapping woman, but he was so afraid to, you know, that he was going to be sent back. But he remembers eating with all of the children on, uh, on Ellis Island because they put the kids all together. So I know the last generation and fortunately, same thing with my husband is my, my, but my father came from, from Poland and his family. It, my problem is getting to the generations before since he was first generation. Um, and I know, of course, his father's name. I know his grandfather's name, but I don't know a lot about them. And that's what I would like to research. And I, I'm looking for um, some help. How do I go back there? I'm, I'm still not clear um, on, on that. How would you suggest, Sheila, that I go back generations to the 
um, great grandfather, uh, and uh, before that, to see several generations. It's amazing. So all I have are my parents, and I know a little bit about my grandfather, but that's that's all. Okay, my great grandfather. Did did your grandparents come to the United States? My grandparents came to the United States, yes, and and my my father came as a six year old. So yes, that I know. Okay, well, sometimes children were sent, um, not necessarily unaccompanied that young, but they were put like my my grandmother was under the wing of a neighbor who was coming or a friend. Sometimes they had to say it was an aunt or uncle when it wasn't to get them over here. You know, in the case of my my uh, grandmother, she was joining her brothers, her adult brothers who were already here. So her family wasn't, her parents weren't here already. That's why I asked about the six-year-old. He's the, he was the only child at that point. And um, actually, uh, subsequent children were born in the U.S. One child um, was was left in Poland and then came, came later, as you say. But um, yeah, so I, I'm very interested in going back generations. Uh, and how would you suggest to do that? See what you can find. And you may have already done this for your grandparents. Their ship's records, were they naturalized? Uh, there's the most amazing stuff in the naturalization. Some contain photos. Some will be very specific, listing the village that people were from in a certain country because they had to um, uh, give up allegiance to the king of Rumania or the emperor of, of, of um, Hungary or whoever it was. And they'll say in the in the uh, naturalization, there are three levels of, of papers that were filed for naturalization. And if they went through the whole process, that last one is the one that contains the most in- information. There are physical descriptions. Um, you know, do you um, use Ancestry? I, ha- I have the naturalization papers. I, I really I started Ancestry, but I was a little bit I was a little bit disappointed with the want of, of, of the everything seemed to be a monetary piece. and. And I wasn't sure. I wasn't, um, as you said, I, I question a lot. And, and I, w- I was a little cynical with some of the things that came forward. People who think they're related. I don't know. So how do you progress? How do you best how, how do you best advise using a source like that? Well, I said ancestry because, and this is why I refer to the hints, um, I have gotten sharper and sharper as you, the more you use, the more you learn about what to get rid of and what to keep. One of the good things, of course, is social security because it'll list other members of the family, uh, uh, death records, because it'll list uh, things. You, you find out the cause of death. That's important. You know, I start seeing diabetes all over the place. Hello, that's something I know ran in the family. And now I have paper proof. I was told that now I have paper proof of that. And, and the other thing is um, the uh, draft records uh, for World War One and World War Two. And it just depends upon the age, but um, World War II had what they call the old man's old man's draft, where even though you were 40-something, you still had to go into selective service and sign up just in case something, you know, was needed. And they had to send all the young men overseas. They could draft the 40-year-old to work in, in on, you know, on U.S. soil. And what you get there is names like who will always know where you're located so I can find out a family name there. And that tells me if it was 1940, when 1942, and the person listed his mother, I now know his mother was alive in 1942, and I can look for her in the 1940 census, which I would have gone crazy before knowing, and I know where they were living. Uh, the other thing is the physical description. I now know, have a physical description. 
And I was amazed how short so many of these people are. He was 5'3 and weighed 160 pounds. You know, my God, the wind would have blown him off the deck of a ship just about. So, you know, that that's what I like about some things like that. That literally adds more to it. Now, the other thing I'm going to suggest for you is for the East European, there are a number of organizations that look at East European genealogy. I know that the, uh, you know, that the Church of Latter-day Saints, formerly known as the Mormons, um, have different organ- different um, specialty groups. And in Washington, D.C., there's a specialty group here that's the East European Focus. It's a, it's a group that's run. It doesn't cost anything. They have meetings. Now everything's on Zoom. They, they have people there who are experts who can div- uh, advise you on what to look for and where to look for it, where records would be kept. Um, you know, it's important to know the names of the towns. Like I said, border du jour, you're in Poland today and tomorrow you're in, you're in Germany. Poland completely disappeared at one point. There was no Poland. So it's really important that you get engaged in European history to know what's coming and going and, and that will help you know where to look. So finding some of those groups that the, um, that the LDS has and then there are some that are also religiously oriented. So there is um, some Catholic groups that look into uh, into historical Catholic Poland genealogy, if that's uh, one of the one of the areas. Uh, there is also Jewish Gen, which goes with the Jewish history. And so there's a very a variety of different, very specialized focus groups. There are also town groups. I was at an international conference three summers ago in Warsaw, Poland. And I'm walking through the lobby in the hotel and I look at the bulletin board and somebody is trying to put together a group of people who would be interested in doing, finding out and discussing and trading information on a city, on a town, I guess it was a city in Ukraine, which was the Austro-Hungarian empire. And at some point it was part of Poland and sometimes it was part of Romania. Um, but I don't care. That was the town. The towns don't get up and move. And, um, and let me also give you a hint, because the towns don't get up and move, 99.9% of the cases, um, once you're pretty sure that the town, that you found the right town, get the longitude and the latitude. Because when you are searching somewhere, you can always use that to find out. So no matter who's ruling and what they've renamed the town, and some of my towns have been renamed three and four times. I remember getting in a cab once and mentioned I recognized the accent of the cab driver in New York, and I mentioned that I had a grandparent from there. He said, oh, that's what it was, but now it's, and he told me a completely different name. I said, no, no, it's the first name. He said, no, no, that's when it was ruled by the Russians. Now it's this. So, so you know, you need to be able to figure out where those towns are, and that will help you also figure out which group is probably better to join but they're all used to, to the borders moving around. So if you were to join that East European group uh, and participate in that, the one that I mentioned that LDS has, um, and the one I'm talking about is right here in Washington. There may be those at, at another um, Latter-day Saints stake up in Newark area. They may have, um, there may be an East European group up there. And um, their records are not necessarily one religious group or another because the records, like I said, were kept in different places. Jewish records has show, have shown up in Catholic churches. Uh, Catholic church records have shown up in um, Lutheran churches. In, it just depends who was told they were going to keep the records for that region. 
and there is no cut and dried rule. So you, when you're searching, you're searching a lot of places. This is this is a, an effort. I hate to call it a hobby. It's an avocation uh, that is all time consuming. Yeah, it's a passion. One of the things I wanted to, to connect with what you had said initially, which I found so it just resonated with me. The object uh, genealogy begin with the visuals because my grandchildren are a little older now. But I used to have grandma camp too every, every uh, summer for a week. But also during the year when they came on holidays or or other times, and having uh, artifacts that that were but just belonged to my grand grandparents and maybe passed down. And I also have a stairwell with photos. And so I have photos, you know, of wedding photos, because they didn't take photos like we do now all the time, but um, special occasion wedding photos of the uh, older generations, prior generations, grandparents, uh, and even uh, aunts and uh, my husband's aunts and uncles on his side, because it's Italian also, um, as, as Amy's was. And it's so, so interesting. And the other thing I resonated with was, resonated with me is food, you know, doing Food because uh, that's a great thing also for, for kids to know. And I love the idea of you said you know, putting together a cookbook. Um, and I think that's something I'll get involved in. But it can, it does become a passion. And, and I'm writing my own family history for my family. Um, and because uh, I want them to have it. And, and uh, I think it's, it's just wonderful to connect like that. So this has been very, very interesting. Well, that's good. You're doing some wonderful things. Let me make a suggestion about the object genealogy. Um, I was always interested in archaeology and museums, and at some point it hoped I'd to go into that as a career, and I didn't. But one thing I learned is, is, um, is keeping the provenance of the items. And when I was working on archaeology here in the city of Alexandria, uh, and first I was out in the field, and, and uh, I got too old to do that all the time, but I was doing the laboratory work. And what I started doing was uh, after I, we would clean things and sort them and we keep track of everything. I mean, we kept track of everything like crazy. One of the archaeologists came over to me and said, I'm going to entrust you with this. And he handed me a very expensive marking pen and taught me how to put the numbers in teeny tiny letters on the bottom of the item. And then we used, first you put down a, a coating of like, I call it clear nail polish, but it's not, but it's a clear acrylic. You put the, use your pen, let it dry. It dries very quickly. And then you put that on top and then you record in on the computer what it was, where it came, you know, all of that information. Well, I came up with something a little more simple to do in my own home was that I started a numbering system and I was trying to do it room by room. So I'll go around the room with a notebook. Now I'm using I lost the notebook. It's here in my house somewhere. Uh, so I went back onto the computer and I started going, you know, each each little round dot on the bottom of the item starts with a number. And I have a grid, you know, a, a spreadsheet, and I'm writing down what is the item? What is the room it's located in right now? Uh, where did it come from? What do I know about it? Yeah, and I'm doing that. Kids will love you, especially, you know, if you let them be the one to put the number on. Uh, so I, I, you know, I've been letting them do that and that's, that's a big help now that, now that they're you know older and they're gone and they're not near me, I have to do all this myself, but that was another way of engaging them. 
And I knew how far I could push them, like 30 minutes, an hour. Are we going to spend half the day in one room? Are they going to be bored? They're going to start asking where lunch is and where we're going next. Those are my cues to stop and to move on to something else, you know, like lunch. So, but those little things that those stickers, and I realize when I walk around a room, how many things don't have stickers on them? How many things I start having other memories about? So then I said, ah, I set up the system wrong. It shouldn't be start with one. It should be one D for den. It should be one O for the office. It should be one um, uh, L for living room. And then just have the numbers for each of those rooms. That makes it easier if you have to put a number in. And in a spreadsheet, you can sort them. You can sort everything that's in one room. You can sort all the artwork. You can sort all the the, uh, uh, ceramics or whatever you want to do. So there's another way to engage them. Doesn't cost you anything. Folks, you know, you're, we could go on for hours and hours, and I, I wish we could, and maybe we're going to have a subsequent podcast episode to continue this conversation because there's such a wealth of information to be gained about this topic, and everybody has such exciting and stimulating ideas. I think what we gained today from Sheila and from the conversation with our grandparents are some suggestions for how to gather information about the ancestry of your grandchildren. You can join a genealogy society, especially a specialized genealogy society. You can try to seek out uh, records that may directly or indirectly provide information about the background, shipping records, for example, other travel records, social security, death records, birth records, marriage certificates, draft records from the world wars. Sheila gave us excellent suggestions about how to keep the providence, how to research them and keep records of the providence of the objects that you find in your home and in the home of your relatives. When you start your research, start with yourself. Start with your own records and your own knowledge and work backward from there to tease out the information about your ancestors. You can uh, interview, of course, and, and Sheila encourages us to interview our elderly parents and relatives and record those interviews uh, on videotape if possible, but at least an audio tape so we can share those with our family members and to excite our children's and grandchildren's curiosity and stimulate them to explore their own heritage and ancestry on their own. Sheila's ha- and the rest of you have suggested showing them objects that they can see and hold and engage with, photographs, original handwritten letters, tell them stories, engage them in their own games about their heritage and ancestry on their own terms, answer their other questions, and any questions that you might suggest about their ancestry, and just focus on your grandchildren's own interests. You know, boys may like cars, boys and girls like food, girls might be interested in clothing, what people wore at various times. The questions are just endless, including the city, the specific location where the grandparents and great-grandparents and other ancestors lived, how they lived, use maps, what was their language, what were their languages if more than one, what they ate, how they cooked it, maybe develop a family recipe book for all these wonderful, rich experiences that you've gained from your research and from the interviews that you've had what they look like, who each grandchild might look like, and who each grandchild's other relative might look like. Let them guess at that and make their own games and records about that. What the city that their ancestors came from 
is call today. Sheila suggested, you know, getting specific longitude and latitude information if possible about the locations of ancestors so that you can trace the location, even if the name of the city or the town has changed many times over the years since they lived there and what those locations look like today. And then speculate with your grandchildren about how your ancestors and their ancestors might live, work, and think if they lived where the grandchildren live today. What else does each grandchild know about each ancestor? Do you know who your great-grandfather was? Do you know who your aunt and uncle is? And make a game of it and, and, and have them all provide information to each other so that it's exciting and real for them. Help organize a family photo album and encourage them, the grandchildren themselves, to interview other family members and design and build their own handmade family tree with combinations of photographs and drawings. And maybe for the older ones, write their family history with you. My warmest thanks to our special guest, genealogy enthusiast, Sheila Wexler, and all of our grandparent callers and listeners. Watch for our announcements of our next Grand Central Radio show, posted to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, iHeart, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and our secure website, grandcentralradio.com. Until then, please contact me, Jerry Cole. Stay well, safe, and secure, and happy grandparenting!